0: Good morning. We're going to be in Psalm 131. Before we read that, there's a uh, you've probably heard at least a variation of this story before, but the actual original story uh, came from an incident between Winston Churchill uh, and his wife Clementine. Winston Churchill, if you don't know. Was the Prime Minister of Great Britain during World War II? He gave a lot of famous speeches and was quite the orator. But he was also um, he was also kind of prideful. Okay, so he he had he had he had a swagger to him that that showed its ugly time uh, ugly side at times. And so the stories uh, that comes from this interaction they were they were in public one day. Winston and Clementine, and he noticed Clementine, his wife, talking with a factory worker. And they were talking for quite some time, and he was getting kind of impatient because they needed to move along in this crowd that they were in. Uh, and it uh, just so happened that this was a man that, before she married Winston, she actually dated this, this man who was a factory worker, now a factory worker. Uh, and later, when they were alone, he was feeling pretty good about himself. And when he finally spoke to her, he said, I bet I know what you were thinking while you were talking to that factory worker. I bet you, thi- you were thinking that you're glad you married the prime minister, And not a factory worker. And actually, and she said, Well, no, I was actually thinking if I'd married him, how he would have done as prime minister, and how rubbish you would have been as a factory worker. Pride can be dangerous, especially when you're married to a sharp witted woman, right? What's the, the famous saying? We all know it from the scriptures Pride cometh before the fall. Psalm 131. It's just three short verses. It's a Psalm of David. It says this. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great, And too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Based upon this psalm and the knowledge we can gain from just being acquainted with all the scriptures... David was familiar with the word, familiar with the law. As king, he would have had his own copy that he wrote out by his own hand. So based upon the knowledge that we receive and that David had from Scripture, we would understand and he would understand that there is a direct connection between humility and contentment. There's a direct connection between humility and contentment. They are like a mother and a child. To use the language of the book of Genesis, humility begats contentment. Then contentment fathers its son's longevity and faithfulness. So I guess if you could say the flow of this psalm, and really this is going to kind of be our points for today, would be that humility breeds contentment. Okay, Humility breeds contentment, and then contentment marks God's people. Humility breeds contentment, and contentment marks God's people. Knowing and having a right understanding of your place in the vast universe helps you to be content in it. Along these lines, there are two seemingly contradictory statements that are true of all of us. So here they are. On the grand scheme of things, number one, you are far less important than you think you are. And number two, you are far more important than you realize. Okay? So two things that seem contradictory that are actually true simultaneously. You're not as important as you think you are, and you're far more important than you realize. What do I mean by that? I mean that you are one person in a vast sea of billions and billions of persons who have ever walked this earth. I actually, I did some, some Google research. I used my Google foo this week, and I said, Google. How many people have ever walked the face of the earth? And you know what? We don't even know. We don't know. Billions, right? That's about as close as we can get. Well, there's, been, there's billions now, and so therefore, necessarily, there's probably been billions that have come before us. Point is, you are infinitesimal, tiny, comparatively speaking. And you may think you're good at some things, relatively speaking, and maybe you are good at, th- at some things, but probably not. Okay? Probably not on the grand scheme of things. Are you the most magnificent at any one thing? You will toil and toil and scheme all throughout this life, and then you're going to die. And whatever you accumulated, your kids are probably going to mismanage. Just a ray of sunshine, right? This is the truth of Ecclesiastes, this is the truth of the scriptures. Go on four or five generations deep in any family, and it's likely not only will your stuff not still be around, but they won't probably even know your name. If it wasn't for the invention of Ancestry.com, I doubt many of you would be able to tell me who your great-great-great-grandfather is, what his name was, what did he do for a profession, what was his life like. We, as an entire race, barely know anything about anything. We're real happy about our technological and cultural achievements, and we marvel at ourselves. But Psalm 2 tells us that from his point of view, God's point of view, atop the heavens and the universe, he just throws his head back in laughter. He laughs. And to add insult to injury, not only is all of this true about us, but the Bible helps us to understand that we are clay in the hands of a potter, stubborn and rebellious clay, that refuses to conform to the wishes of our Creator. We sin against our Heavenly Father, rejecting Him, rejecting the truth, and we deserve His wrath. And through all of this, this infinitesimal little rebellious piece of clay that you are, we are still puffed up with pride. Pride. We still think and act as if we are the autonomous masters of our own destinies. We, when we have what we think is an advantage over others, we're proud of it and we boast in it as if we are the ones who gain this advantage all on our own. And when we don't have the advantage, we're jealous and envious and filled with our own pride of discontent that God doesn't know what he's doing enough to give me that thing instead of that person having that thing. And we, glad, we gladly gobble up the same rebellious fruit that Adam and Eve did because we think we can make ourselves equal on an equal plane with our God, our Creator. I'm reminded of the words of the Lord to Job when finally, after 37 chapters of lamenting and asking God why he had afflicted him so, and then all of Job's friends, of course, had to sorry all over it and pour their two cents on the pile of absolute not knowing what's going on, right? complete just gobbledygook they they're just trying to figure this thing out why is job so afflicted why has this happened to him and and job doesn't know and his friends don't know and they're all giving their their thoughts and then god finally speaks up and puts everyone in their places and he just eliminates any shred of human pride if you if you're ever feeling really full of yourself and proud just read the last couple chapters of job it'll take care of that so job chapter 38 verses 2 through 18, it just says this. This is, this is what God says when he speaks up. He says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who, who are you? Who is this person, this infinitesimal little human, one of billions and billions and billions and billions and billions that I have created, known every single hair on their head? This little bitty guy who lives in a little bitty place in this massive universe that I have created asking and accusing me of not knowing what I'm doing with his life. Who is this this person who darkens counsel without wisdom or knowledge? And then he says, you know what, Job? Dress for action like a man. You think you're so tough, gird up your loins, and I'm going to question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determines its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Or who stretched the the plumb line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the sea up with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And prescribe limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, "'Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken.' Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Job, Job, declare it if you know it. Speak up, bub. Tell us what you think. Give us your opinion on all these things, Job. Now replace Job's name with your name. Speak up. Hear me out. You are not nearly as important as you think you are. Yet, you exist. God created you in His own image. The Scripture says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The God of all the universe knows you, and he knitted you together in your mother's womb. Not only that, a part of you, your soul, is immortal. Immortal. You're an immortal being. He has specifically ordained the days and events of your life in such a way that will bring him the most glory. Those of you who have laid hold of Him as their Savior and King, He has made a way through His Son Christ that you might be forgiven and share in the promises of eternal life with Him. And after supernaturally adopting you into His family by no merit of your own, like we just sang, not in me, by no merit of your own, He has given you the privilege of expanding His inevitable kingdom, a kingdom that has come and is coming Not through swords and tanks, but through the proclamation of the gospel as the means of supernaturally regenerating the hearts of others and expanding his kingdom. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you are far more important than you realize. Just maybe not in the ways that you want to be or think you ought to be. This is reality for you and for I, biblically defined. And it can be really uncomfortable and really humbling. But that's a good thing. This humbling, this humility, this is the backstory, this is the knowledge that King David is working with when he pins Psalm 131. And that's where we start today Psalm 131. O Lord, My heart, because I've recognized my place in the universe, my place before you, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too marvelous for me. So in verse 1, David is renouncing pride and self-exaltation. If there was ever a man that, had, that would have had grounds for boasting, it's, it's King David. And he sees the smallness of himself before an everlasting and almighty God, and this is all he can say. I just I keep my eyes low, I keep my heart toned down, and I do not occupy myself that are above my things that are above my pay grade. As I mentioned earlier, in general, there are two kinds of pride, the pride of having And the pride of wanting. The pride of having is the pride of those who have superiority, or they think they do, and it expresses itself in boasting or intending to boast. The pride of wanting is more subtle, and it's more dangerous. The pride of wanting is the pride of those who don't have superiority, but wish they did, and continually crave others' attention and approval. You might call it the pride of the strong and the pride of the weak. Pride is very subtle, and it clothes itself with some remarkably weak-looking forms so that you'll feel sorry for it, and you'll see how much it's suffering. Be careful you don't just seed pride in arrogant people. It's often most manifest in those who have nothing to be arrogant about or they crave attention and approval from others. David renounces all that, and he says in verse 1, he does it at three different levels, the level of feeling, the level of appearing, and the level of acting, okay, There's, there's three defenses David is trying to, because he knows that his heart is going to be, is rebellious, and he is that clay that is, is hard to shape and mold. And he knows that he wants to continually, just like his first father and mother, Adam and Eve did, they want to put themselves on an evil playing field, with God, even playing field with God. And David knows that about himself. And so he says, there are three ways in which I'm keeping pride toned down. First, my heart is not lifted high. I enjoy the, the sport of wrestling, okay? So if you can't tell by the fact that I move kind of like a caveman and every five years I have a shoulder surgery, I like wrestling, okay? I, I, I think it's a fun, it's a fun uh, sport. It teaches, you know, it teaches roughness and it's good. So, so I had one lady tell me one time, I don't like wrestling because it's, it's sweaty and mean. And I said, those are the reasons I like wrestling because it's sweaty and mean. But anyway, so in, in wrestling, I teach kids... Uh, three ways to defend themselves. They use their head, their hands, and their hips, right? It's three levels of defense. They want to put, you know, they want to keep themselves so that they're protected against the person that's trying to wrestle against. Same way, right? Okay, same way. David is giving us the the tools to deploy, to defend ourselves against the opponent of pride that can creep in subtly and get you. So the, the first thing is your heart. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up it's the level of feeling. I cut off the first emotional stirrings of any feeling that I have something that exalts me over others. Or that I crave something that would exalt me over others. I put the first heart stirrings of a desire to be exalted over others to death. So that's the heart. Second, my eyes are not raised too high. Oftentimes in the scriptures, you a haughty heart, a haughty person says it, this idea that it's kind of like looking down your nose. You're hot, your head is back, you're hot, your, your eyes are lifted up, you're proud. My eyes are not... So if it gets through that first level of defense and the emotions that you're having to feel superior or wanting to feel superior over another person bubble up into some sort of physical manifestation, you can catch it there and say, no, I'm not going to... I'm not going to say those words. I'm not going to lift my my countenance up above this person. My eyes are not lifted too high. I'm not going to let pride employ my body language in order to try to gain some sort of superiority over a person or a group of persons. And then finally, We go to the level of actual action. Okay, so if it gets through the heartstrings and maybe it manifests itself in your body language, the next level of defense, then the final level, is I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. He has now moved out from the heart and the eyes to the activities of the day. If any pride slipped through those first two defenses he just recognizes action that pro- actions that are actions that are pride filled actions and tries to stay away from them tries to avert himself away from prideful actions or facebook posts right pride is a great evil and engages us in a game of comparisons where there's no winning only losing Considering the humbling reality that we all find ourselves in, seeking to elevate yourselves over others is like one beggar declaring himself superior over another beggar because his face is just a little less dirty. And David renounces it at every level. The alternative to pride in verse 2 is a wonderful, peaceful contentment of soul because you have nothing to prove to anyone. When you embrace your, your your situation, when you embrace your place in the universe, and how dependent you are on the Lord for salvation, it's free. It calms the soul. Consider this hard teaching. If you are anxious, if you have anxiety, it may have something to do with the fact that you are filled with pride. Pride. Entertain this thought with me for a second. If you lie awake at night worrying about things that are beyond your control, do you think that God is so small that he does not know? And what does your worrying do? Jesus himself says, does this this worrying, does it add any hours to your life? Does it add any dollars to your bank account? Does it add any friends to your core group? If you are harsh and controlling towards others, with your attitudes, if your eyes are lifted up over them, do you think that you are so important that the world could not go on without you? Or do you replay social scenarios over and over in your head, analyzing every word and gesture that people make and say, worried that somebody might be upset with you or that you didn't please them or that they, uh, they might not like you any longer, they may not agree with you, and so on and so forth. So, well, I, know this, I know this sentiment, so what if they are mad at you? What if you did say something they don't agree with? are they your Lord? Is it them you have to please? Or is it the Lord? Is it God you have to please? And I'm certainly not advocating carelessness in your interactions or dealings. We are to let our yes be yes and our no be no. If we have agreed to take on an obligation or meet a deadline, we should work hard to fulfill those vows. But anxiety is not the way of one whose life, destiny, and purpose is held in the same hand that holds the cosmos. In case you missed that, let me say that sentence one more time. Anxiety is not the way of the one whose life Destiny and purpose is held in the same hand that holds the cosmos. Rather, the way of a redeemed child of God sounds a whole lot more like this. Verse 2, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Notice the focus is on his soul, his heart, his deepest inner person. If this deep level can be delivered from pride and boasting and craving self-exaltation and, a, and autonomy from all authority, then all appearances and actions will express this humility that I'm talking about. This weaned child is his picture. It's his chosen metaphor for contentment. The weaned child the unweaned child, excuse me, is frantically rooting around and craves milk for his stomach. An agitated baby, that, that's the image, that, that cannot be calmed, cannot be consoled until he gets what he wants. But a weaned child, a child who has, has gained mastery over his appetite, so to speak, when you put that child on his mother's lap, he's satisfied. He's comforted he's quiet it's not about what he wants or his appetites or his cravings it's about his heart and this is a picture of David's restfulness contentment satisfaction joy and peace in the secure and loving presence of his god of his lord of his master and how do we know that if you look to verse 3 the mother in the scenario, a—it's a, uh, God would be the, the parent, the comforter, and we would be the child. Our souls would be like children, like a child with his mother. How do we know that? Verse 3, it says, O Israel, hope in the, the Lord. So verse 3 and verse 2 have to be relating to each other. He's not just saying hope in the Lord out of nowhere in a vacuum. Verse 2 is expressing that it's God that gives us comfort. And then verse 3, hope in the Lord. We live in a culture that is desperate for verse 2, for this inner peace, for calmness of soul. But hear me out, no pill, no long walk in the woods, no vacation, no possession that you want, no amount of self-love. No success, no scholarship, no six-pack, no promotion, no president, nothing and no one can give you the peace only found while contently sitting in the lap of your Lord. Nothing can give it. Hear me, oh anxious soul, this morning, you're not going to find it anywhere else what you crave so desperately. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What's the secret that Paul is talking about? We just sang, when peace like a river, when sorrows like sea billows roll, gives that the hymn, I love that hymn, it gives this breadth of human experience and emotion, and then it comes back to that refrain, the chorus, it is well, it is well, it is well. And this is the, this is the refrain of the Christian life. This is the refrain of Psalm 131. This is the child. The weaned child in the lap of the Lord, it is well with my soul. There is no situation in this world, there is no words, there is no worry, there is no poorness or want or lacking that can make me unwell because my destiny, my soul, my salvation, my everything sits in the hand of the one who spins the cosmos. It is well. It can't not be well. That's the secret. The secret is trusting that the safest place in all the universe is in humble obedience to the one who made it. You hear that, because it's not good enough just to say, well, I just I love to spend my time with Jesus. He's beautiful, and I have these spiritual experiences with Jesus. But then, when you get to a place in the Scripture where He calls you to obey Him, and it's contrary to your lifestyle, we don't like to spend so much time with Jesus anymore. The safest place in all the universe is in obedience Like a weaned child in the lap of his parent, in beautiful submission and comfort and obedience to him. That's the safe spot. That's the good spot. That's the beautiful spot. I met a man yesterday. His name was John. And he wasn't rich, and he wasn't attractive. And he wasn't exceptionally talented in any way. He didn't have a booming voice. He was not a preacher or a singer. He was rather soft-spoken, actually. And nearly every Saturday for the last 20 years, through wet rain and snow and heat, John has stood in the parking lot of what's called the Hope Clinic in Granite City, Illinois. Don't be fooled by the name. The only thing this facility does is abort children, abort babies. John doesn't yell or scream. He's not haughty. His eyes are not lifted up high. He doesn't act harshly. He doesn't say harsh things. Very simply, when a woman comes to this clinic, he just asks her to talk to him. Come talk to me. So that he can offer her help. Money. Support. Child care. What do you need? To help her see there are other ways of handling a stressful situation than murder. John has been spit on, yelled at, threatened, physically assaulted, knives and guns pulled on him and pointed in his face. Very rarely will anyone talk to him except to get angry at John. But Saturday after Saturday after Saturday, with a smile on his face, John comes back. I asked him. I said, "John, how do you do this?" I, I mean, I was I'm, I was just there with him for the morning, and I was physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. And I said, "John, how do you how do you do this?" And he said, he just with a smile. He said, "I'm I'm re- there's nothing to say." What he said plainly: "I'm not special. I'm nothing special." I'm just here to serve the king. I'm nothing special. I'm just here to serve the king. Say that with me. Say say that sentence with me. Ready? One, two, three. I'm nothing special. I'm just here to serve the king. Can you imagine what a difference it would make in your life if before you went to work Schooled your kids, taught a class, started a meeting, interviewed for a job, preached the word, served in your ministry, signed up for vacation Bible school, went on a missions trip, did street evangelism, cooked dinner for a suffering person, interacted with your family after a tired day, Or cared for your aging parents. Can you imagine the difference it will make in your life if you just take a second and say to yourself, I'm nothing special. I'm just here to serve the King. Do you hear that song? Wind peace like a river. It is well. I'm nothing special. I'm just here to serve the King. When emotions are running high, when you're really tired, when you've had enough, I'm nothing special. I'm just here to serve the king. Verse three: "O Israel. O church. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Join me in this. This is what David is doing. This is why he's ending the psalm in this way. He's inviting all of us in to understand and partake in what he's expressing here. He's inviting us in to understand our place in the universe, to realize we have nothing to be proud about. But everything in the universe hinges on God, and He is our Master and our Lord and our Father, and we can sit and be comforted by Him. He's inviting us into this type of relationship. I'm nothing special. I'm just here to serve the King. Join me in this. Put your hope in Him. Find your rest in Him. Calm your troubled heart in His presence. Quiet your soul by resting in the promise of His presence. And that's the message of Psalm 131. Renounce self-reliance. Renounce self exaltation and self rule at your heart level, at the eyes level, the appearance level, and at the action level. Renounce it. And find your calm, quiet, deep soul contentment in God. And then call others to do the same. Say this to a world who is desperately anxious Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. I'm gonna pray, and then we'll just take a few moments. Actually, let's take a few moments to, to contemplate these things, Psalm 131. And then I'll pray, and we'll be released. Heavenly Father, forgive us where we have lifted our heads high. Forgive us where our hearts have desired superiority over others. Forgive us when we have tried to put ourselves on an equal playing field with you. Forgive us of our pride. Lord, may we have a fun, exciting, inviting, hope-filled vacation Bible school. Pray for that now, Lord. I pray for those those who are going to stay after and offer their time and their talents and their services to tell children about Jesus. I pray for our Mother's Day gathering next week, Lord, that um, Lord, we wouldn't we don't worship mothers, but we do recognize the importance of their roles, and we love them, and we're thankful for, to have moms in our lives, so help us to celebrate them well. Pray for those who are graduating, God. saw many pictures. Par- proud parents, so we're missing a few folks here that traveled for graduations, and we just ask that you give them traveling mercies, and help us to recognize those graduates well when they come back, and tell them that we are, uh, we're, we're for them, and we want them to be for you. So bless them. We pray for Miss Mildred Yunker ask for your healing hand upon her, Lord. We miss her. I know she misses us. Lord, I pray for the Bombergers, new members in our church, Lord, that you would bless them and put your hand upon them and help them to grow and help us to get to know them and love them. I pray for the Masons who had a sick child on the way to church this morning and aren't able to be with us today, Lord, but um, new members. We, we need to surround them, Lord. Help us to be humble and loving and welcoming We pray for Miss Amy Hester. Same things, God, that she would grow in you as she's declared her love for you and for your gospel and her laying hold of the truth claims of Scripture. Help her to grow in all ways, Christ, and may we fulfill your commandment to us by teaching those you have sent our way to obey you, to enjoy you, to be peacefully content with you. We are nothing, Lord. Nothing special. We're just here to serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May you go in peace.